All right. Welcome to another edition of the Road Dogs podcast. I am your host, Nick Shaw, joined by my cousin and co-host, a very flustered Josh Shaw. Josh, say hi. Man addicted to ideas. Need be intervened. A man addicted to ideas. Need be intervened. Cut, 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 cut. Hold on. What the fuck? I might just leave this in. I'm fucking flustered. We got to restart the whole f- intro because I, I messed up the word too. So it, let's just start over. All right, ready? <laughs> and action. All right. Welcome to another edition of the Road Dogs podcast. I am your host, Nick Shaw, joined by my cousin, co host, uh, a very flustered Josh Shaw. Josh, say hi. Man addicted to ideas need to be intervened with starvation. A man addicted to truth need be fed. Matthew McConaughey, Green Lights, page 153. I mean, how can one line just be so poignant, you know, and just really encapsulate the existential crisis of man? You know, I think addiction, we're going to talk about that today, the nature of it, you know, why are people addicted to things they are? Is it good for them? Just felt kind of prevalent today. I like that. I like that. Matthew McConaughey, longtime listener, friend of the show. Anytime you want to come on for a guest appearance, we'd love it. Can I just start tagging him, like, if when I tweet the show, just, like, tag him at the end, just be like, hey, new podcast, at McConaughey. <laughs> I think that would be awesome. I think it'd be great to, a great start. Uh, I'm not certain that he runs all of his social media, but I wouldn't be surprised if he does. You know, he sings, he strikes me as the kind of guy who, who might be in control of a lot of that, but also would be like... I, I just can't it. imagine him... <laughs> I also like that. I also like that this is a podcast about the movie uh, Skyfall, by the way. And <laughs> I think that we have talked about Matthew McConaughey in every single episode, and he's only been in one movie that we've talked about. See, I think if America were to have a James Bond, like if we're going to cast a James Bond for America, it should be McConaughey. He would be my cho- choice if we're going to remake Casino Royale with an American. Wow. That is a wild movie. Um, but. Without further ado, today we are talking about Skyfall, Sam Mendes, James Bond movie. Uh, Josh, you picked this one, so I'm going to kind of let you take the reins here and tell us why. So I really enjoy this movie, and it's odd because I'm not really a fan of the James Bond franchise on the whole. I've watched maybe like four movies from it, and I don't particularly like many of them. I think Skyfall is probably the best, but what I find interesting about it, what I keep coming back to it with, is just like... It's such an interesting movie all the way around from the person directing it where they were in their career, which we'll kind of get into later, but more of the impact it's had. This is a movie that made a billion dollars <laughs> and was the highest grossing movie of 2012, I want to say, maybe behind the Avengers, if I have that correct. And Sam Mendes is really the first prestige director I can think of who transitions into the franchise genre in such a big way. I mean, this guy makes American Beauty in 1999, and by 2012, he's doing a James Bond movie. And not just like, oh, his career fell apart. He's made like a prestige James Bond movie. So this is really fascinating to me. And I wonder if, do we get Ryan Cooper doing Black Panther? Do we get so many of the like big directors we've had kind of interested in, in genre and action, all these sort of stuff? Mm, that's a really interesting take. Um, I don't know if we do. That's a, that's, wow. Yeah. That's a, that's kind of a lot to think at at one time because now it is so, so much the norm. I mean, 
Sam Raimi, not really the same level, obviously, as Sam Mendes, just made Doctor Strange. You know, like, it's it's weird to think about things like that. Like, um, yeah, I'm not I'm not quite certain. I enjoy James Bond as a character. Uh, my earliest memory would probably be Moonraker, uh, watching that, like, at my, at, at my parents' house um, as a young kid. I always loved Jaws as a character. I thought that was, like, a really interesting concept with the metal teeth. Um, but I've always felt that these movies work almost better in theory than practice sometimes. Uh, it's a great concept, this, like, womanizing, world-traveling spy who takes down the bad guys. Uh, but I think this perspective, which we can get into later, of just kind of a more fun approach, but there's there's an underlying dark menace to the character, really adds another layer. And I think Sam Mendes is a great person to kind of capture that. Uh, I think that he's made a not a living off of, but has done a great job of capturing main characters who are flawed. You know, you look at Kevin Spacey's performance in American Beauty, which is troubling and problematic at, at this point. Road to Perdition, Tom Hanks is a killer and an assassin. Um, you know, really his only virtuous character, I would say, is probably the main character in 1917, which is a very deeply personal film of his. But yeah, I, I think this is a really good movie. I uh, love the script, love Javier Bardem's performance. I uh, love how Judy Dench is given a lot of room to breathe and just M is a main character in this movie. But yeah, I don't really have a strong prevalent relationship with any of the James Bonds or any of its iterations. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting to think about that like this character, I would say is one of like the top five most famous fictional characters or most like important or popular of the last century. And I, I don't mean like the 2000s, I mean like, from 2022 to 1922, I would say James Bond's at the top of the list. 100%. It's like an Elvis Presley or like a Kurt Cobain or Johnny Cash. Like just some things that like just never like go out of style or just like remain cool forever. I like that I'm talking about fictional characters. You're like, yeah, Elvis, Kurt Cobain. Like, <laughs> like you could have popped in a little Batman there. You could have seasoned in a little Sherlock Holmes and, and you ever go. <laughs> but, you know, but, but I think that that's important, though, because I don't think that they're one in the same because James Bond has translated into style. There's guys who buy suits, you know, to look like James Bond, you know, the theme music has been parodied. Hell, there's a whole genre of, of movies that make fun of this Austin powers, you know, um, there's a, there's a whole bunch of other ones that I can't think of right off the top of my head. Spy spoof is like a thing. Yes. Yeah. It, it's a whole genre of itself. Like Fletch is really kind of in on the joke of like being a spy or PI or, or detective. Like, it's it's gotten to the point that it is past just a fictional character to me. It's true. But I was going with that is like, despite that, I think you and I have no interest in him. <laughs> Not really. Not really. It's, it's passing at best for me. I think I have more of a connection to the Austin Powers franchise than I do James Bond. And it's not only until I got older that I was like, oh, that thing from Austin Powers was them riffing on this from James Bond. How many, I know you said you've seen like four of these, so I'm probably going to go and assume that they're all the Daniel Craig movies. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, and again, when I said earlier, like, I feel like a lot of these movies work better in theory than practice. A lot of the early ones could almost pass as an Austin Powers movie. Like I took a film class uh, many, many moons ago and we did films of the 60s and it was like the first James Bond. I don't want to 
even begin to think that I know the title. I want to say it's Dr. No, but that's probably wrong. I think it's Casino Royale, right? Isn't it? That might be the first one. Yeah, but I, oh, I, okay. it's, the, it's the one with Sean Connery, the first Sean Connery movie, kind of like Halloween. These movies reboot every four, three movies. So it's kind of hard to keep track of. But uh, we watched it and, you know, you can respect the craft from the time and the period, but it's like, this movie is not good. You know what I mean? Like, there's nothing, there's nothing that, um, you know, makes it stand out from any other movie from that time period. Uh, but I think that, you know, the performances have always been pretty interesting. And like, I think that the darker psyche approach with Daniel Craig is something that I enjoy more than just seeing a guy who drinks cocktails and, you know, beds beautiful women across the country and, you know, these movies just become like location movies almost. And I just don't find that appealing. Yeah, which is, I think, an interesting time to talk about, like, why aren't we what I'm calling Bond boys? And I think the reason is kind of simple is when we were growing up, the movies all kind of sucked. Yeah. <laughs> like, here's yeah. Brosnan, from what I've seen, hasn't wasn't the worst James Bond. But, like, he didn't make a lot of good movies that appealed to me. They were very almost... They were boarding that line of parody, like you were talking about, where they're so goofy and silly and like bombastic, where like he's surfing through a volcano or something like that, or, or like yeah. there's sharks trying to eat him. Yeah, of course. No, there's stuff like that. And like, I don't know. I mean, as much as I think Jaws is a funny character, <laughs> what's so threatening about a guy that has metal teeth besides the fact he has metal teeth? You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's quite, quite a gimmick. It's just, yeah, it's kind of silly. Do you think Jaws, like, when he eats burgers, do you think he takes his metal teeth out for, like, something a little different? Or do you think he's like, nah, I need that extra help? Imagine biting your tongue with those things. Oh, see, that's what I'm talking about. It's tricky. Yeah. So I wonder if he's like, he doesn't touch pizza. He's like, that's 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 tricky because. That is tricky. But he can bite ice cream and not, you know, not feel anything, which is something that I well, he would be psychopathic. Yeah. <laughs> so uh. I don't know, like. I have a friend, my roommate in college, who you love. Uh, I'm saying that love kind of loosely. but <laughs> You bonded with over many a days in Maine. He's a giant James Bond fan, so like me, he and him would talk about it. And I don't know. I, I just I find it odd that we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of Skyfall, which is even of itself is crazy to think about. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of wanted to talk about this. I think the first time I saw really Skyfall, the reason I watched it was his Grand Theft Auto V, where they put the Aston Martin in the game. I was like, oh, that's so cool. I want it to look like the one in Skyfall. But I hadn't really seen the movie. So I was like, oh, that was cool. I want to go watch the movie now. And then I watched it. I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. And then I kind of just stopped with my James Bond like watching until a couple years later where I revisited Casino Royale, which mm-hmm. was great, the Daniel Craig Casino Royale, and uh, Spectre and No Time to Die. Yeah. I would say Casino Royale, the Daniel Craig one's my favorite out of all of these. Over time. I think it's... I've watched clips from it this week as we've been getting ready for the show, and it is very, very clever. Is a thing so I clever. With it. And we can get into it later, but I would really have loved to have seen the, the plot that this movie could have had. I think that would have been really All interesting. Right. Let's get into that in a few. But Nick, for the people who haven't seen Skyfall, I want you to explain the plot of Skyfall in 60 seconds or less. The minutes on the clock are you ready? Jeez. This is going to be so hard because one of the notes I have in, in my section here is, I love these movies, but one of the things that really kind of grinds my gear about them, and this goes for the Mission Impossible movies too, is you need a fucking Wikipedia page to follow what's going on in these goddamn movies sometimes. Like, I'm paying attention. I'm an active viewer. You know what I mean? And I'm like, 
wait a minute, he got that chip and now he's going to the casino. But like, how did that, how do you officially know? Like, it's just very convoluted, but okay, I guess I'll give this a whirl. It's funny. I think this is one of the simpler James Bond movies though, in a lot of ways to its betterment. Is it like, I mean, why is Sylvia like, why is she, why does he have a sex slave? Like, why is she part of the sex trade? It's never explained. Like, I don't know. It's lonely on that island is the only thing I could think of. And he went about it the worst way possible how to address that loneliness. Well, that also kind of is conflicting because it seems at one point that he kind of wants to sleep with James Bond. <laughs> I'm putting the minute on the clock. You can, you can figure this out <laughs> as you talk. Are you ready? Yeah, I guess. All right, your clock starts now. All right, James Bond's in a mission in Turkey. He gets shot by one of his agents. M gives her the, the go-ahead to, to, to fire, whatever. Uh, he washes up ashore. He's already sleeping with a girl, drinks a, drinks a beer, stops a scorpion, really cool trick. Uh, then he goes back, and Ray Fiennes is going to take over for M because he thinks that she's not confident anymore. 20 seconds. Anymore. Um, oh, uh, 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 James goes on a mission to take out Patrice, who's the guy who attacked him in the first scene when he was on the top of the train. He got shot. Uh, he takes him out. He gets Ready? a coin. To go to a casino and then he goes to the casino he meets sylvia um and then when he after he meets sylvia he goes and captures him and he's got a really messed up face he's in a big tank uh after that he escapes james bond tracks him Eight down seconds. but he goes back to uh his childhood orphanage place it's a big shootout at the end he kills sylvia he's the last rat standing uh, unfortunately m dies and uh ray Fiennes takes over as prime Five, minister to, to four, be continued three two one um, you know, you skipped a lot of it, and I think you you focused on like they gotta know who Patrice is. If they don't know who Patrice is, this whole film's gonna fall apart. But otherwise, I got I think hung up did. on Patrice. <laughs> I don't know why you're like I got like I watched it was like oh his name's Patrice interesting. I I don't <laughs> you were like gotta make sure they know about Patrice at the Shanghai fight. Uh, hey man, you know I'm trying my best. You did. You did. And speaking of trying their best, let's talk about the production history of this movie. Kind of fraught, I, I would say. Yeah, MGM in financial distress, which is mm. interesting because, you know, we always think of like big mass consumerism companies like Ford and MGM or, you know, whatever it may be as like these just like invincible titans, which is kind of creepy anyways, because that just is like we're, we're feeding that cycle. But yeah, every everything is susceptible susceptible to collapse. Which you know, as as Matthew McConaughey highlighted with his uh his his passage earlier with red lights in the COVID nineteen pandemic. Sometimes, like you know, life comes at you fast. Thank you for bringing up a thing we didn't talk about on mic. That's lovely. So the story of Skyfall starts with a movie that is made less than it costs to make, and a documentary about crickets in Afghanistan. Yes, that's where director Sam Mendes found his career before Skyfall, which is crazy to think about. He's making documentaries about crickets in Afghanistan in a rom-com with John Krasinski and Maya Rudolph that literally no one saw. Well, you know what's the beauty of that? That is someone who is so established in their craft or like comfortable in their field, whatever it may be, to be like, I'm going to do whatever fancies me. It doesn't matter if 10 people watch it. It doesn't matter if 10,000 people watch it doesn't matter if 100,000 people watch it. I find passion in this. It inspires me to work. Let's go make it. Like, And I, th I think that's kind of the whole career of Sam Mendes. Like, I, it's very selective. It's not a, it's not a lot of movies to pull from. Um, he's done, he came from the, the world of the stage. So you always know that the performances are going to be there. Uh, but, you know, up until the last couple of years or so, I would say he was pretty dormant. Like, 
speaking, you know, from a from a mainstream standpoint. He was digesting on Skyfall for about two years. He's hired in January of 2020. Uh, 2010. Oh, my God. <laughs> someone, someone slipped me some uh, some laxatives or like uh, what, what other thing that... Oh, it, I don't care. This is my one swear for the episode. <laughs> is what I was trying to say. I don't know why I couldn't find it. Oh, my God. You're good. Man. He is hired in 2010 by MGM as a consultant on the film to the studio with Quivert's financial burdens, like you kind of talked about earlier. The burdens were resolved, and the studio financed with investors in November of 2010. By then, of January 2011, Skyfall was then just titled Bond 23, was announced for a November 2012 release with Mendes now directing. I kind of wanted to touch more about this because he's working on Away We Go in 20, 2009, which is the rom com we talked about. And then he sits for three years to work on Skyfall, basically. Mm-hmm. <sighs> These movies are hard to make. You know, the people people crap on the Transformer movies. We have openly crapped on a lot of movies on this podcast, which I think we both kind of talked about trying not to do as much. You know, people spend years of their lives working on and, and planning these movies. It takes takes a small army to get something made so especially you add the financial burdens of this onto it um and i think probably a lot of the dominating control that the broccoli family has on this property so it's kind of a, it's a lot to take on you got a lot of you got a lot of chefs in the kitchen the broccoli family have green hair do we know that can we source that real quick broccoli family discovered broccoli that's how they made their fortune <laughs> Katie's dad to the days before christ <laughs> Katie's dad, longtime listener, friend of the show, tr- tricked me with that one time at a at a Christmas party. This sounds like how you sound like a five year old because, like in kindergarten, I would tell people like we own the grocery store Shaw's, which is a northeastern like <laughs> chain, and you fell for that at how old? Age twenty, twenty seven, and I people fell for that yeah. at age five in kindergarten. Yeah, you know, sometimes you know, I just trust people. I guess I can't, I can't do that. <laughs> Sometimes you're under red light, red lights in conversation. They just you just get lodged in them. I don't know. As the story goes, while well, Hugh Jackman's Christmas party, uh, Daniel Craig and Sam Mendes began talking. During their discussion, a drunk Craig asked Mendes if he would want to direct Skyfall. The producer of the film, who were sober, agreed with Craig's instincts and hired Mendes as the director. This is something that is interesting to me because when you look at his uh, Sam Mendes, you know, disog- or filmography. There's nothing that suggests he's going to make a James Bond movie. You know, it's Revolutionary Road, Jarhead, Road of Perdition, American Beauty, all before this. So why do you think he was drawn to this? Do you think it was like, man, I just took a massive stinker where the way we go. I need to, like, get back on the board. He's a Brit. Do you think he's always wanted to do this? What do you think it was? I think it might be some of that about, like, maybe, you know, being British. But it doesn't strike me as somebody who works off of the impulse of, like, financial concerns he seems to be to be like somebody who only takes projects that are like passionate to him but you know i just want to kind of debrief real quick can we just run through that christmas party roster real quick some of those names hugh jackman's christmas party hugh jackman's christmas like do you think he's like a wolverine like shaped like christmas tree dude i would love to be a fly on the wall at at any of those christmas parties that would just be so awesome (laughs) You know, Ryan Reynolds is probably there. So Blake Lively's probably there. 
Yeah. Although I don't know, this is like 2010, 2011 era, so maybe not. But oh, this is interesting. Like maybe Patrick Stewart's there, and he's like looking a little more spry. He's doing some semantics. Yeah, he might be. He might be. I guess our invitations got lost in the mail. They shockingly didn't invite ten year old me and and what seventeen year old you. Listen, man, this is this is a year where we take off. We're getting the Christmas party invites after they hear all this praise on the Road Dogs podcast. I mean, we're really going to love this movie up, I think. So, <laughs> so if I don't get that, Mr. Well, hold on. We got to get Hugh Jackman's approval. So we got to do like Logan next or like like X2 or something. Hugh Jackman strikes me as just being such a genuinely nice man. I would love to just he sit down and lovely. hang out with him. He seems like a lovely man. What? <laughs> <laughs> Like he's coming back for Wolverine now, which I disagree with, but like he seems thrilled about it, so I'm thrilled for him. It's yeah. just it's it's nice. You know, I agree with you. I don't want to get off on a tangent here. I do agree with you. Well, we're already off. Wolverine. Just go ahead. I do agree with you on that Wolverine statement, but you know what? I'll take any moment to see him as Logan. Sure, sure. All right, go abs. So this is a kind of a great moment while we're kind of lodged and like, okay, Skyfall is coming. Is to talk about the Bond movie that we were supposed to get, but we never really got. Peter Morgan, who people know now as the writer of The Crown and, and the showrunner, who also wrote and directed, I don't know if he directed, I, I think he only wrote actually, so I'll take that back. Elizabeth, which is about Queen Elizabeth and Days of Princess Diana's death. He was the first writer to be hired by MGM. His script, Once Upon a Spy, I, I want to go off on this just for a second. This is a clever man, and the best title he'd come up with is Once Upon a Spy. The premise of this is great. I love this premise. Dog. Title. It's like it's 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 as if I named it. <laughs> I think we should make this movie Mice Punch by <laughs> Jesus. Well well, how old were you in twenty ten? Uh like sixteen? So you definitely didn't sound like a child. <laughs> no. Okay. Anyways, once upon a spy, come on, come on, Peter. It would have begun in Cold War Berlin and sent it on a younger M and her affair with a KGB secret agent. The script would then resume in the present day and found the offspring of M and Mr. KGB as a corrupt Russian oligarch who Bond is tasked with killing. As of an unyet revealed turn of events would have resulted in Bond killing M in the film's climax. Now, Nick, you you want this, shockingly. I'm a huge fan of subversion. I don't know. I like I like seeing things that I don't expect. I like... I like left turns and I think a movie and there are remnants of that, that movie in this, there's a lot of time, like I said earlier with Judy Dench, giving her a lot of time to breathe, a lot of stuff to do. She's shooting her shot in this movie. I think that this just like kind of two, two storyline would have been too risky at that point with all the financial implications and where the like studios were with this. Now I would love to see this movie. I mean, give this, give this a shot. It'd be hard because there's no Craig, and you'd kind of have to start over with a new iteration of M and all that. But I mean, this is a really interesting premise. I don't know. I'm a huge fan of taking risks. Why do I wasn't opposed to Michael not being in the first 40 minutes of Halloween ends. It was just the execution of when he was brought into the movie. That was the problem. Well, this is not a time to talk about a bad sequel. We're talking about a good one. Okay. 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 So let's just, okay. let's just I leave apologize. that one be. I'm sorry. Don't you bring Halloween ends into this. I'm sorry. God. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> This idea is interesting to me in a lot of ways because if you have Bond killing M, you're signifying he's almost like the villain or he succumbed to the dark side, which is an interesting idea to me and plays more with the mommy issues, which do come up in Skyfall. 
I don't know. I, I would have been interested to see this. I just don't know if it would have been good. You know what I mean? It's it's a big swing, especially – is this the second or the third with Craig? This would have been the third. This would have been after Quan Masalas. Okay. So at that point, we're pretty established. So it wouldn't have it's, – it's still a risk, but it's not as big of a swing. Um, but I think it would have slowed down the series. I think people wanted mm-hmm. wanted more, more action and these movies people want to spend time with James Bond and I understand that but I don't know I'd I'd watch a 10 episode mini mini series of this like plot line that'd be awesome let's get this in the crown season 5 let's have queen elizabeth secretly have a russian kid <laughs> with uh gorbachev let's get oh it going God. crown season 5 just twist the facts let's go yeah so, written by obviously- quentin tarantino <laughs> So obviously, Once Upon a Spy, come on with that title. I'm still not over it. And it's Skyfall kind of do have some overlap. They both feature mommy issues, um, which is interesting to me. It, they're both more personal, smaller stories than I feel like what they this franchise usually does. It's not like a world domination. It's like, hey, go kill this one guy. Or this guy's trying to kill this one person. So there mm-hmm. is an overlap. Likewise, I think when you look at the work of, of Peter Morgan – it is very heavy on the British world. Henry VIII was a TV miniseries he did. Elizabeth, about Queen Elizabeth, and of course the crown. He's very fascinated and like intrigued by the idea of British monarchy and how that side has to confront its culture. So it's possible that Morgan's ideas on these topics made their way into his script as they did Skyfall, which is very much a movie about England and empire and all these sort of things. So I don't know. Regardless of the theoretical thinking, Morgan's script was deemed too dark and discarded by Mendes when he came aboard. Yeah, I think that that's totally fair. I mean, but I, I don't think that. And this is the thing too. I always have a problem with the it's too this or it's too that. I don't think that that's the reason why th- that script didn't get made. I think we both know what the reason is. It doesn't have James Bond in it for two hours, <laughs> and that's well, the main no. Problem. I think I think it would have been like a ten minute opening scene with I think M and the KGB guy. I think that's my guess. I don't know, but oh, see the way I kind of read into it was like it, this was an unraveling, like this was part Ooh. of the story. Yeah, which I thought I that thought would be magnificent. Yeah, Morgan, come on the show, explain this to us. You know, he's let's hop in the lab. We'll go to Hugh Jackman's Christmas party. It'll be us, Peter Morgan, <laughs> Daniel Craig, Ryan Reynolds. We'll have a great time. We'll talk about the Once Upon a Spy. We'll pitch. We'll pitch some new names for it in case it ever gets made. I love that. What would you name this movie if you had to? Oh, don't ask me. It'd probably be worse than Once Upon a Spy. <sighs> uh... You can't do the Spy Who Loved Me because that's already taken. Unfortunately, come back to me at the end of the podcast. We'll see if I got something for you. All right, all right, good, good. I like to see that your attention is going to be divided throughout the rest of the show. Wonderful. <laughs> so <laughs> on November 3rd, the studio announced the film's title, which would be Skyfall, and at shooting locations they'd film in London, Shanghai, Istanbul, and Scotland. The film will also star newcomers of the franchise, Ray Fiennes, Ben Whishaw, and Javier Bardem. This is interesting to me, and this is one thing I've always been fascinated with, the James Bond stuff, even though I don't really love it. How odd is it that, like, how much of a coronation the making of these movies is. Like you have to have a press conference to be like, hey, here's our stars, like for these movies. Yeah, and there's actual controversy as to who plays James Bond. <laughs> yes, yeah, so like they had to have Daniel Craig on a boat and sail around all of England to be like, no, no, I, I look cool, I can get built. Yeah, and like Idris Elba was up for the role at one point and there was a bunch of controversy about that. It's like, Jesus, like, I don't know. I guess it, I... 
and again, maybe because we're from the, from the States, you know, this probably holds a little more reverence for, for the guys across the pond, but yeah, I, it is almost like our Batman. I think in a lot of ways where like, there are the same sort of uproar when someone's cast, mm. but Warner brothers doesn't have to hold like a press conference to be like, here's who's in the movie. Here's where they we're do. filming. No, they do though. They guess, <laughs> I guess the Comic-Con. Yeah, every year, man. Think of Comic-Con. Sure. Colin Farrell was there. There's like the whole Matt Reeves interview where like he's behind that awful green screen <laughs> with the Bat logo. I mean, I love the interview, but it's so distracting. Oh, DC fandom where he's like, yeah, yeah we're going we're gonna to make this movie. And, and Aisha Ty was like, that's great, Matt. This definitely wasn't filmed in a soundstage in, in a Warner Brothers backlot. Don't do Matt dirty with that. that oh, I love Matt. I love Matt. You know we're going to talk about him come the one year anniversary of the Batman. Uh, it's also like interesting to me that like it's an actual thing of like man who's gonna make the title song for these movies and it's like a real contentious thing where people get like upset or excited or it's a big deal that like this artist got that or people are like oh no Ed Sheeran so I, I don't know it's very unique in that way. It's become one of those things, too, where it's like, oh, man, now this is my chance to get into movies, right? Like, I feel like it's always a pop star to, like, launch their platform to the next level. Uh, I'm going to go on a whim here. This one stinks. The song Skyfall stinks. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't like songs that repeat the, the title of the movie over and over again. Sorry. <laughs> Skyfall. That is a good point. This song does that a lot. That song is bad. Well, you think it would have been like, once upon a spy, like you think we got Peter Morgan scripts. <laughs> I like Skyfall. I'll fight you on this. I think it's a pretty good song. I think Adele does a great job. I think the opening credits are massively like done. Um, they're great. And I, they're they're good. Okay, so you're just like you're not a fan of Adele's you know talent here. Well, it's got nothing to do with Adele's talent. She's got an amazing voice. I just don't. I don't approve. I don't enjoy the song Skyfall. <laughs> I uh, I enjoy the opening titles of this one. I always think they have great ones. Casino Royale, the, the Craig one has an awesome setup too. Uh, my personal fave for the James Bond songs is the Chris Cornell one. That makes a lot of sense uh, for you. Yeah. I want to talk about the other newcomers that Sam Mendes brought along. The most notable of the bunch is uh, the boy I'm going to call Big Raj, cinematographer Sir Roger Deakins. Nick, you agree with me. This man is a king. I want to hear. Give me like your, your minute and a half on Roger Deakins. Just an absolute master of his craft. Uh, I love the way he uses light. Love his openness about talking about cinematography. He, him and his wife have a podcast that they do. That's just marvelous. What? Yeah, they do. You didn't know about this? No, you got to pimp this. I don't care if they're competition. Oh yeah, they have a great podcast where they like divulge like about their careers. Talk about like, yeah, it wasn't I was gonna pass on this project. It just didn't seem like it had the merit. It's it's amazing. It's marvelous. I can't remember the name, of course, right now because I'm on the spot. But that's amazing. Um, love his collaborations with the Cohen brothers. Uh, those are my, probably my favorite works of his. I mean, Barton Fink's probably the most underrated Cohen brothers movie. Uh, what else is there to say, really? Like, also, not only just great at the formulaic things of just like, you know, the standard practices, but also is not afraid to push himself. I mean, 1917, as much as, you know, it might be a movie where people are on the fence about where it's a little more sizzle than steak, is a marvelous feat of technical achievement in filmmaking. Mm -hmm. His podcast is Team Deacons. Maybe uh, we should send him and Peter Morgan to a school for different titles and things. <laughs> Big Raj, I love you, but, you know, come on. It's tough. It's tough. 
It's a great podcast. But though. when you when you look at his work, every single movie that you could argue maybe defined a decade or like a five years in film, he's touched it. Barton Fink, Shawshank, Fargo, Jarhead, No Country, Assassination of Jesse James, Skyfall, Prisoners, Sicario, Blade Runner 2049, 1917. Oh, His 15 Oscar nominations are fourth most among cinematographers. I think he's the best ever to do it. And um, he, he cinematographers, if that's even a word, the hell out of this movie. He cinematographers the F out of this movie. <laughs> it's not a word. Um, I would agree. I, again, just I love his use of light and the way he shoots things with the Coen brothers. He, he's one of those cinematographers that like has such prevalent shots that you can close your eyes and you can imagine like a lookbook of your favorite shots from Fargo, from No Country, from this, from Barton Fink. Like, just take your pick. I think what's also remarkable about Big Raj, I'm sticking with it, is this man's like 70-something, and he's still doing primo work and not shying away from it. He's not slowing down. He He's 73 right now, and he's still going strong. I mean, 1917 was 2019. Like, his run of Sicario Blade Runner 1917 is just unreal stuff for a guy his age. And I want to say he's got more stuff on the docket that is that is of note. He's, he did uh, Empire of Light, which is Sam Mendes' next film. So, you know, I think we're, we're reaching the back third of his career, but I wanted to talk about and acknowledge Deacon's crafts because he's just a genius. He's he's an absolute genius. He is, I agree with you, one of the you know top five, top three living cinematographers of all time. And it's a shame that it took Blade Runner 2049 for him to win his first damn Oscar because <laughs> take your pick of all the movies we just talked about. They probably should have won, but uh, yeah, somebody who's probably on, on the, on the back or back third of their career, but is still doing really, really tasking and, and tough work and challenging themselves a lifetime of challenging work. Really always a great like decision maker as far as who he works with. Mm-hmm. Denny Villanueva, the Coen brothers, Sam Mendes. Like he just always like, He's very precise with who he works with. He wants to work with the best because I think he is the best. Mm-hmm. And it really shows. Another newcomer to the Bond franchise of note is Thomas Newman, who composed the score. Newman had scored every one of Mendy's films previously, so it wasn't really a shock when he was added to the cast or the crew. I think he does an excellent job on this movie. He also is another dog. He has 15 Oscar nominations, which are tied for the most without a win despite producing some gorgeous scores on American Beauty, Finding Nemo, Wally, and 1917. Yeah, I <laughs> another person, you know, what what more do we really need to say about Thomas Newman? Like we could just do a whole podcast about him, but yeah, a shame that he's never won an Oscar. It gets to the point that I think is why Skyfall is so interesting. This is a murderer's row of talent behind and in front of the camera for an action movie. Mm-hmm. And this is almost made to be an Oscar contender, to be a to be a heavyweight in a way that I don't think any James Bond movie had ever really tried to do previously. I don't know the whole history of the franchise, so I'm not going to claim that for sure. But it's it's kind of like what the Mets want to do now, where the Mets are like, yeah, we'll sign Scherzer, we'll trade for Lindor, we're going to try and re-sign to Grom. We're just going to get like the best people and see how that works out for us. Maybe we'll sign Aaron Judge, see, see if we care. And this is what Skyfall really was and became. Yeah, except for it worked. <laughs> All right. Well, you didn't have to go there. I just also want to say this. I don't want Aaron Judge. By the time this episode's like Aaron Judge might be a Met, I, I honestly hope not. But I mean, I, I don't think I would be opposed for Aaron if I were you for Aaron Judge to be a Met. 
Principal photography on Skyfall lasted 128 days. Most of the film was shot on location, which is another thing I absolutely adore about this movie. It is very grounded and real, and the fights and the punches feel very visceral. It doesn't feel like the the buffoonery of the other things, and I think this is the thing that Casino Royale also does with, with Craig, is everything feels so harsh, from the dialogue to the action to just like, Getting whipped on your on your you know testicles by that thing in Casino right. Royale, it all feels like it sucks, and that mm-hmm. is such a great different change of pace for this franchise. I I agree with you. I enjoy that. I'm glad that this movie doesn't fall into kind of what I was talking about either, where the locations are the plot. You know what I mean? The the place where we're at is the driving factor. I will say I enjoy the fighting in casino royale more just because it's contained they're they're very they're very much in constrained fights like in the bathroom or there's one in an airport like all those fights feel very brutal and like almost as if james bond could lose or get really really hurt this movie i did have some problems with the cgi i thought the cgi at times looks really really bad um especially for a movie that was made at this time and had this big of a budget and i do think some of the fights do do go a little overboard i thought the fight on top of the train's a little silly i don't know i just i have i have a problem i need to have a a higher governor for bullshit when it comes to action movies you have to understand that that's what you're going to get going into these but sometimes yeah this one for me did have moments where i broke away a little bit speaking of stunt work and action stuff one piece of stunt work that is real it's not cgi nick don't don't think it was is that with the help of a crane on a train carriage for safety, stuntman Andy Lister dive backward 300 feet off the train. And that's wild. That is absurd. There's not an, a, a number in the world for money-wise that you could offer me to do that, especially off of a moving train. I mean, not that that makes yeah. any difference whatsoever. But yeah, like <laughs> where, you fall, <laughs> where you fall in the m- momentum of where you're going to land, that's just absolutely terrifying. I don't even want to think of the logistics of that. That man is absolutely insane. And <laughs> I hope he got paid like a million dollars for that, but he probably got paid very poorly. He got like a burrito at craft services. And like, here you go. Yeah. <laughs> Ready to go again? <laughs> I just can't imagine what the whiplash is on your body when you make that jump and it's it's done or whatever. But shout out Andy Lister because it looks terrific. I mean, so let's think about this logistic a little bit logistically. There's multiple angles of that shot. So either he did it, they they either did it one time, like, is that your day? You do that one time and it's over and you just have multiple setups, like one at the bottom, one at the top, one on the side. You know, they have like three or four setups in that shot. Or did they make that poor man do that multiple times? Like, I don't know. He's like, did we get it? They're like, not quite. He's like, oh. Oh, you know, a little, little blurry. You got a little water on the filter down here on this on this setup. Well, Dragonfly was on the lens, so I think we're going to have to do that ten more times. <laughs> Fincher just pops up in his co-directing somehow. <laughs> and he's like, no, get out. Uh, on another note, Hashima, an abandoned island off the coast of Nagasaki, was the inspiration for Silva's Lair. The sequence, kind of speaking to the, the bad CGI, was created using a combination of large sets of city streets and CGI established shots, which looked tough ten years later. I, you could talk about it now because it's not good. I mean, I don't really feel like those ones are as bad as the ones with the dirt bike riding in the, like the beginning of the oh. movie. Those, those are, are really ter- bad. Those are horrifically bad. 
the fall, uh, Patrice, shout out Patrice once again here on the podcast, longtime listener, friend of the show, until he unfortunately passed at the hands of James Bond. Uh, <laughs> but he was falling down, though. He had the Road Dogs podcast. He was like, Road as he fell the Dogs! He went <laughs> as he fell. <laughs> yes. Yes, he did. I heard it. Director's cut. Uh, his fall looks terrible. It just, it's just bad. Yeah. Like, um, the helicopters that fly over when James Bond has a little radio, the, the callback, it comes later in the movie, but, uh, where he pulls out the little radio, the, the helicopters just look terrible and it's a really close shot on them, which is bothersome. Like it wouldn't be as prevalent if it just stayed on the angle of the ground, uh, from their point of view. But when we go overhead from the Eagle eye, it just looks really bad. Uh, the one thing that I did want to shout out was when the train comes through after mm. Sylvia, Silva blows the ground. That looks amazing. And I don't no, think a I lot think of that. they I, must have did some of that practically. And that was what I was going to say. I don't think a lot of that was CGI. A lot of that looks really practical, which I love. Yes. Uh, the Hashima, I think, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, setting came about after Craig met with Swedish filmmaker Thomas Nordenstad while fo- shooting The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Nordstad, I think it's Nordstad, uh, produced a short 2002 documentary about the island and recalled Craig taking extensive notes during their meeting about the island so he could then put it to use in Skyfall. It looks great, I, I think, for the most part. It's a very cool concept. It just, uh, you know, could have been a little, could have a little bit better. Um, now, this is the, the Sil- Silva Island, Sylvia Island or whatever? Yeah, Silva's Island where he has Severine, he shoots her, and there's a whole rat speech. It has, yes, okay, of course. I just want to make sure I got my locations right. Okay, so this is what I'll say about that. It is almost too bland. It has Denis Villeneuve, like Blade Runner, Dune vibes, but not in a good way. Those those have like blank textures for a reason, and it adds to the story thematically with all the vibrancy of his personality and like kind of James Bond and her red dress. I felt like it clashed. Like it just, it didn't have enough to it. You know what I mean? It felt like they were on like a backlot set to me that was made out of wood, like instead of it being like a, a kind of like apocalyptic city. It's because they were actually on a on a set, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> well, no, I know. But like, you you know what I'm yeah. saying in the sense, you know, there's sometimes it looks stale. There's there's times where I've been completely tricked for what I thought was, you know, an open street was a set many times. Like, look at some of the Stanley Kubrick stuff. Going to casting now because there's not a lot of else about the production other than like, oh, they made the movie, you know, came up pretty good. Is that Sam Mendes was lucky that he didn't have to cast the the whole film by himself. Judy Dench, Daniel Craig, and Rory Kinnear all return to the franchise, flying Call of Soros. However, Mendes' take on Bond and him has always interested me. I think he does carry up and follow up a lot of the notes from Casino Royale. But he described his version of Bond as a combination of lassitude, boredom, depression, and difficulty with what he's choosing to do for a living. I think the scene that we talked about um, where he's getting reassessed before being put back into the field and they do kind of like the psychological test, that's a really telling scene for the character. Uh, my favorite line in that is when the you know analysis person says employ- or murder and he says employment. And I think that really kind of takes some of the elements of Casino Royale and like the jaded sense of losing a loved one in Quantum Sol- Quantum of Solace, all of that coupled 
from the from the building blocks of those two movies really comes to the forefront in this one. He's very much damaged. He's not good at his job. He fails the physical exam. He shouldn't be back in the field. He and there is no resolution to that. He doesn't really become better. He just survives. He's the last rat standing. I find it incredible how much Mendes and Craig kind of, you know, branch of this franchise reconstructs the staples of this franchise and its main character. Like, when you think of what does James Bond do, James Bond is a womanizer. Traditionally, that's just how it is. But throughout Craig's run, we kind of interrogate why. Is he afraid of commitment? Has tragedy touched him so much that he won't let himself feel for others, which leads to Vesper Lind? He drinks and smokes. Why? Is he an alcoholic? Does he drink to excess because he wants to drown out his feelings? Does he drink to cope with the physical pain he suffered throughout his time in the service? Do his vices extend past that to painkillers or something else? Oh, well, James Bond's a trained killer. Does that weigh on him? <laughs> Have the years of doing so led to a decay of his spirit? I think of the moment, like you said, where he says murder, employment. There's a dullness in senses. Uh, there's a dullness to his senses and deadness to his spirit with this Bond that we hadn't seen. Or you think of like, oh, well, James Bond's always alone. We've never seen or heard about where his Bond family is living or what they think about him. He doesn't have a crazy aunt named Tabitha. But why? Is James Bond alone? Does he have a family? If he doesn't, how has that impacted him? What I'm kind of getting at is, is I think that what Mendes and Craig do of transforming his characteristics and archetypes and make them his vulnerabilities is such a really interesting way to approach this character. Were they the first to analyze these ideas? No, I think, you know, Casino Royale does a lot of this as well. But I think they deserve credit for doing a lot more with this, the character, than I think a lot of other directors and, and crew kind of would. Definitely. Um, <clears throat> I also think that goes to show how versatile Daniel Craig is. You know, mm. I think he's probably the best actor to play James Bond. Agreed. You disagree. think it's Pierce Brosnan? He's great. He's great in Dr. Fate. He's great in Black Adam. Yeah, I don't know if I can give it to Academy Award winner uh, Sean Connery. Untouchables, best supporting actor, Sean Connery. The Chicago Alfred. way. <laughs> Comes back at you with a body. Come back at you with a knife. The 20-minute death scene. <laughs> it's like, just die. Come on, Sean. Just It's okay. Just go. I need the dog, Indiana. That was pretty good. Thank you. Thank you. It's not just it's not just my Bill Murray impression, Nick. It's, it's a little bit of Connery we got. Very versatile. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of versatile, when it came to Cass and Silva, Mendes went after Bardem hard. Mendy saw the character Silva as potential franchise best and want to create something Bond fans had never really seen before. He felt that Bardem could bring this to life because he's one of the few ashes of the game that could become what he calls colorless. Is this more as more than just a function of the plot? Uh, ben Bardem returned Mendy's commitment. He had the script of Skyfall translated to his native Spanish, something Mendy saw as a sign of his investment. And the mm -hmm. two came up with the idea of Silva's bleach blonde hair. I have a note about this real quick. Let's go. Is Javier Bardem the king of crazy hair? His character in The Counselor, his character in No Country for Old Men, his blonde hair in this movie. He's got like a wrap around his head in Dune too. He's just like, no yeah. hair this time. Yeah. I think so, honestly. I think it's maybe like him. I think it's, I think he just has the belt. There's no, there's no. I think he's got the strap. Threats. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I can't even think of anyone that like try. I think Mark Wahlberg. You know, with the ponytail shooter really comes to mind there. 
some of his weirder hair choices on like Boogie Nights with the Eddie Adams wig, maybe, yeah. but not not nearly touching Bardem. No, no. This is inspired casting, I think, because, I mean, it's not a shock to be like, wow, Harvey R. Bardem's great. But to again, to go after one of the best actors in the game to be your villain is just great. <laughs> and I think it is the real step in launching pad for a lot of the increase of caliber of villain, where we see Ash portraying them. We get Christoph Waltz next inspector, who he's not, you know, Christoph Waltz isn't who he used to be, but still very talented at the time when he was cast. And then Rami Malek coming off of the, the Oscar win for Bohemian Rhapsody is next in No Time to Die. So I wonder if Silva is a real turning point where it's like, all right, we got to like up the stakes of just like not only the villain, but the actor portraying that villain. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, go back to Casino Royale, Mars, Milkins, I ruined his name. Uh, it's, it's, Mars! <laughs> it's Mads, I know, I'm so bad at names. Pronounce it for me, you're better at it. Mads Mickelson, we're both a little marble mouth today, I'll be honest Thank you. with you. I, I feel like I've got some, some goo in here. Maybe, ooh, <laughs> sounds like a personal problem. I need to get another cup of coffee. <laughs> Matt, but even uh, Mads Mickelson is, is great in Casino Royale. Uh, as for the rest of the cast, Mendy's brought on Ray Fiennes and Obi Harrison Ben Wishaw, all of which were his idea. He says, I offered ideas about Money Penny Q and a flamboyant villain, and they said yes. Mendy's and co. did consider bringing back Sean Connor for the role of Kincaid, the Bond family gamekeeper. However, after internal consideration, they thought it'd be distracted from the audience and decided on Albert Finney. For the best, I, I would have loved to see Sean Connery interact with Daniel Craig. I don't really think we ever got it, and I don't mean on screen. I mean just like in general. And but this is not the way to go about it, and I'm very glad they went in the direction they did. Yeah, this would have been the uh, this would have been the like legacy sequel twenty years before the legacy sequel, and I'm super okay with no more of the legacy sequel trend. Yeah, we could just we could shelve it. It's fine. We'll put that with like the same bin as like Once Upon a Spy, and just call it a day. It's fine. Hey, no, 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 no. We're reviving Once Upon a Spy. That's a ten part miniseries. You're going to make a, a fan film about Once Upon a Spy? <laughs> to the box office, Skyfall was released first on England on October 23rd, 2012, but who cares? All that matters is the film came in the United States on November 9th, USA. USA! 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 Despite its Woo! late release... <laughs> Despite its late release, release of the calendar, Skyfall became the second highest grossing film of 2012, making $1.1 billion. Big money. Big bag. That's crazy. Man. I remember the commercials for this movie of like the ending shot of the, the commercials. I want to say was Bond landing in the train and like fixing his cufflinks. Yes. And even then I was like, that's so cool. So suave. I had that as soon as I was watching this. That's one of the notes I had in here was Craig is the Mac daddy of Bonds. And then I quoted like or noted that scene. <laughs> he just hops oh, down. Pops, he's just so pops cool. a collar. Yeah, he's a boss. Uh, that total makes Skyfall the highest grossing James Bond film in the franchise. The only competition is Spectre, which made $879.6 million. Third on the list is 2006 Casino Royale, which only made 594 What I'm saying is the financial heights of Skyfall have and will continue to be beat any other Bond in the Bond franchise, I think, probably forever. This movie was just a massive juggernaut, and uh, it was great. Yeah, I think, and I don't want to divulge into this too much, but I think if No Time to Die had gotten a wide release and literally was not the first movie to get stumped by and COVID, COVID. It, it, yeah. probably, it probably would have beaten that, but who knows? Yeah. Uh, regardless, audiences could have seen The Fallen alongside Skyfall. We got a murderer's row here. Wreck-It Ralph, Flight, 
It's a great movie. Two great movies. Argo. Pitch Three Perfect. The Kevin James classic, Here Comes a Bump. Four great movies. <laughs> One of my favorite movies, The Perks of Being a Wallflower, and Lincoln. All in theaters with Skyfall. You got four good movies, and I only saw one of those in theaters. I'll, I'll let you comes take the boom. Guess. Nope. <laughs> take a guess at which one. It's it's actually. I think it's gonna be Lincoln. It's actually that's correct. I because like I know our dads. I feel like one of them either pestered you about seeing it with them or or like you know I just know how like we're history buffs too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Skyfall would take home the Oscar for Best Original Sound and Best Sound Editing, both of which were rightly deserved. Not according to Nick, though. He thinks that Adele should have gotten that Oscar. You know, it's just cruel of you, but... I, look, I don't know who the other nominees were. I don't want to get a little out of order. You're getting a little out of order yourself here. I'll find it. I'll find it right now for you. It's probably like Wreck-It Ralph. You want me to You want me to vamp while you do that for, for a minute here? Please, be my be my guest. Okay, I had a little category here while I was watching this. I had spy tropes, and these are just things I love. Okay, I love tight driving. Anything that opens in like Venice or like Turkey, where we're driving on streets that are like twelve feet wide, love it. Anytime somebody breaks out a laptop that has grids and numbers and analysis on it that just does not exist in real life, love that. That's one of my favorite things. <laughs> and like the music, like duh, buh, uh, like it's getting really intense, and it's like you just punch the stuff on a keyboard, bro. I do that every day. Uh, casinos love any time that that spies go to a casino or there's a sexy lady at the bar at the casino who is smoky and mysterious. Love that. Uh, what else do we have in here? Uh, you know, that might be the end of the oh, training, training scenes, any training sequence. I love a training sequence. It's like, all right, this guy's getting back into business, we're gonna kick some ass now. But this one's great, Except he doesn't, yeah. And that's what's great about it is actually he doesn't. <laughs> Uh, so here are your nominees. It was Skyfall, Chasing Ice, um, which is from a movie called Chasing Ice, apparently. I have no idea what that is. Uh, Ted, Everybody Needs a Best Friend, Life of Pi, Pi's Lullaby, uh, and Les Mis, Suddenly in Les Mis. Eh. I think, I don't know how Les Mis didn't win, but... <laughs> well, I think, you know, some people don't want to cry when they're trying to listen to music, and uh, I'm one of them. That's fair. I mean, then I don't know why you listen to Bob Dylan. Makes me want to. He doesn't make. Okay, I, I resent. Oh, oh, you get the little out of order yourself here, my friend. This is just like, I think what's great about the Nero, the more I realize, you get like, you could do like, you're getting a little out of order, and then do oh, fuck you, man. It could be like one sound bite, and you just wouldn't know. Yeah, and then you could almost end it with you blew it. You could you could loop it all in. The De Niro trilogy no one really wants, but I think we should do. <laughs> Moving on to the fun stuff about Skyfall, now that we're like, I don't know, 50 minutes deep. Uh, Nick, thoughts on the fan theory that James Bond is not a person, but a code name given to MI6 agents? Uh, this kind of falls in the same category as like, was the gopher all in Carl's head? Is Maverick dead? That or... is totally unfair. That is so not true. One's about a good movie and like an interesting take on this franchise. The other's like, that is a, it's a goal for real in Carl's head. No, it's a stupid asinine movie. Who the who thinks more about Caddyshack other than like, uh, I guess that was funny. But even to think it's funny, you're you're off your rocker. I I just I don't I don't think it holds any weight. There's too much personal like stuff added to this character of James Bond this time around to like warrant that take. I think. Well, someone has agreed to that, and that person is W or DF Lovett. He poses, Nick, 
that each Bond is brainwashed into thinking they are James Bond with MI6 planting false memories. Skyfall was never real, Nick. It was a conspiracy. The gravestones are fake. And Silva is, as the theory suggests, the only other living James Bond. This this is dumb. This is just not a good theory, in my opinion. But hey, DF Lovett is, is entitled to his own opinion. I love this theory until Skyfall, I think, does this. And then it's like, ah, well, I, I guess we can't. That doesn't make sense anymore. And, and that's fine. But Well, but we just saw the ramifications of, like, not not double crossing James Bond or anything like that, but like you know, misleading James Bond and letting him be expendable and get hurt. So like it would kind. Of, we already saw the what happens with that. It would completely like corrode like what you said, like nineteen twenty two to nineteen ninety or we're in, we're in twenty twelve. You know, right, oh my god, oh god, twenty twenty two. This is just this was. Just throw this in the can, maybe this episode. We'll just we'll just throw it there and just let it go. Yeah, we are Skyfall right now. We're falling from that sky, baby. I I think this makes sense if you want to think about the James Bond franchise as one whole like universe. If you want to believe that all the way from Casino Royale from Connery to No Time to Die are all the same world. I guess you can apply that, but I think it just makes more sense to be like, nah, it's just one one reboot. Why is Judy Dench the one with Pierce Brosnan and the Daniel Craig? I don't know. I don't care. She's a good actress. That's all that really matters, I guess. Right. Uh, next question. Is Sam Mendes the most talented director of these movies? If so, why hasn't this franchise gone after the big fish? Should MGM slash Eon look for bigger fish moving forward? We kind of talked about this already, but, you know. I'll take Corey Fujima. Oh. <laughs> that, is a, that is a great point, too, of like the guy who made True Detective or directed it then goes on to make a James Bond movie. And again, another thing you wouldn't expect, but hey. Yeah, I think this has probably become the status quo for, for Bond. I, I don't think they're going to be content with doing like a Colin Trevorrow or a Ryan Johnson, who I love, but I think they're more... I think they're going to go after someone who can make like a real impact on this franchise instead of like someone for hire. Yeah, it. I think we're past the point of... I also think this movie kind of real quick laid the groundwork to now this trope of making our characters dark, making our heroes dark. And when done so often, it becomes a parody, but when done right, like this movie, the Batman and this, this past year, it's perfect. But I also wonder if the next iteration will try to do something a little less dark and maybe a little more vibrant, which could be interesting as well. And I don't know who, who do you cast like, or who's, who's your, who's on your dream list for that kind of vision, right? Because right. I think that all, I think all of these, as much as some of them we might not have any connection to, they are distinct. They all have their own feel to them, you know? Yeah. So, I'm curious if how big of an impact Kingsman has on this franchise moving forward, because the first Kingsman was such a hit, you know, culturally and at the box office, that I feel like if they didn't make No Time to Die, that's where they would have gone immediately after with a new actor. But that movie's in that franchise has really taken like a like a hit. <laughs> the King's Man I've heard wasn't that great. Kingsman Two didn't do as well. I didn't even see it, despite the fact that I love the first one. So I feel like the zany, bombastic like R, probably out the door. But I don't. I don't know. You make a great point though. I think this is another film that I think not suffers from, but can be responsible for because of Batman Begins and Christopher Nolan, where. I think even if you look at Silva and the Joker, there's a lot of parallels in a lot of ways of how 
middle of the franchise, this big villain comes in and shakes the whole thing up and challenges the hero's morality and all this other stuff. Um, so I don't know. It, it's a good question. Who who would you cast to play the next Bond while we're on this topic? Do you have anyone in mind? <sighs> Keanu Reeves. <laughs> Nicholas Cage. What a Q. Is that a new toy you just got me? Awesome. <laughs> I'm looking for my pig. <laughs> Can you I don't imagine know. a Bond movie be pig? <laughs> I'm trying to think who's in there like I, I, I think it's I think Craig was cool, but I like I said, I think there there's going to be an injection of youth. I think there's going to be a little more vibrancy to this next bond. Yes. Uh, but I don't know who who is British. I mean, there's tons of people in that pool who matches that. I mean, Tom Holland would probably be a name that no, I Well, if I, I don't want Tom Holland. I don't I, I don't necessarily want it either, but I could see that name getting thrown around. Um Hmm. You know I always wanted Tom Hardy. I oh. always wanted Tom Hardy to play Bond. That was my dream forever. It's odd. I think we're like a weird like five years too too early or too late on this sort of thing where I think Elba would have been awesome. I think Hardy would have been awesome, but because of their age, they're probably out of it now. I agree. Which is a yeah. shame. Mm-hmm. You know who would be really interesting? And I think it probably goes back to the darkness and they probably won't do it because of that. And I think he's probably more intrigued than other stuff. Jack O'Connell would be an interesting approach on like Bond. I think he's probably too short, a little too like aggressive and intense. But I just love that guy, and I'd love to see him get some more work. I think he's awesome too. But again, probably somebody. I mean, <laughs> go watch Startup. I mean, I just can't picture that guy playing James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> he's the bartender's like, "What would you like?" Instead of saying uh, a shake and not stir, he just punches him in the face. He just steals the liquor for yeah. himself. He, he O'Connell paints paints in broad strokes. There's no subtlety, hmm. and I think with Bond you need a little bit of subtlety, a little bit of cards up the sleeve. Tough, especially because you need to find someone who can do the action and the suaveness. And I think this is part is a little harder to play than you know just that. But you also need someone who can lead a franchise. Yeah, and that's also hard. But you can't go too young where it's baby Bond. You have to be somewhere in the middle, and it's really hard to find that. And that's why Holland came to mind, just because of the things yeah. you said, because he is somebody who can, who has the pull to lead a franchise and is mm-hmm. almost in that ripe age where by movie two or three, you know, he'll have aged up enough, I think, to be a little more realistic as a, a, a Bond, young Bond. Uh, you know, I'm just going to say too short. Yeah, he's 5'8". Yeah. Well, that was always the crack against Hardy was that he was too short, too. Yeah. But I mean, look at Ethan, Ethan Hunt. Hardy baby. scares me. Yeah, well, <laughs> holding down, holding down the world, holding down the globe, baby. Okay, Ethan Hunt versus Daniel Craig James Bond. Who's winning a fight, Nick? Oh man, that's tough. Well, Daniel Craig has the size advantage, but I think probably Ethan stronger. Hunt, probably stronger, but I think Ethan Hunt might be a little more resourceful. Mm, that was my takeaway too. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think. I think I'm going to give it to Craig. I think Craig's just a bulldog. Yeah, in a fight, in a physical fight, yeah. So I think there's two ways to look at it while we're here before we move on to the next thing. If they're in a caged arena, I think Craig mauls them. If they're I in do like too. an open if they're in an open city and they have to like eventually find each other and fight, I think Hunt maybe has the edge. I agree. I think Ethan Hunt has a trick up his sleeve that like somehow he has a trap where Daniel Craig gets hit by a car or hit by a train like <laughs> Yeah, 
I, I, I'll take Ethan Hunt in a wide open grid city, but if we're in a cage and it's one mano y mano, I think Daniel Craig's probably taking Ethan Hunt down. But I think it's a bloody fight. Uh, from speaking of blood and other substances, who has more DNA in the world, James Bond or Genghis Khan? <laughs> that might be a dead heat. <laughs> <laughs> because you know James Bond doesn't wear a condom. He's just like, I don't believe in it, frankly. It's stupid. Um, <laughs> and if we're using the idea that this guy from you know Craig to Connery is the same person, he's gotten a lot of gals, you know, yes. in their cycle. Yes. So how many illegitimate kids do you think he's got? Like bookmark it for me. Well, I mean, we're 1922 to 2022, as we just figured out. So I'm going to say he's got at least probably 30 kids to 40 kids. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, like that Vince Vaughn movie where he's like the sperm donor. Yeah. It's (laughs) like that with with, uh, James Bond. That should be the next Bond movie. Just give me like a flat out comedy. (laughs) Give me like. Bond and Co. It's just like him trying to be a single dad, raising like 30 different kids. Maybe Ricky Gervais is Bond. He's like, can't believe I got all these keys. That's crazy. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> but I think this is the one part of Bond that is just like so absurd is the fact yes. that like when we meet him and he's just back from the dead, he's just like, first thing he's just shacking up with a random chick. Yes. And afterwards he's like, I'm just having a drink, just Jay chilling. He he meets Severine, and then like he just sneaks on her boat, and she's in the shower, and she's not intimidated. She's just like, "Yo, what's up? Let's let's do it. Let's go." Yeah, exactly. And those are the moments too that still I just take me out of this franchise as a whole, but this movie too. Uh, but there is a great thing that they do with Money Penny where it is rebuffed, and like he is not allowed to do it, which I did like, which is a good take on that. But for the most part, yeah, it's him always betting someone and i just i i mean besides the politics of that and how problematic it is it just doesn't usually work if this movie didn't have the menacing under, undertones that it has in the next 20 minutes that scene really would have pissed me off but the, the transition yeah. and that is one thing that i do have a problem with these movies is they do move very very fast these movies the mission impossible movies like it's almost a information overload and then all of that is then like executed Right. Like I got the coins and I'm going to go to the casino and then I'm meeting Severine. And then when I meet Severine, I'm going to go get her on the, it's just like, wait a minute, like slow down. down? Yeah. Can we process all of this? The first like 30 minutes of this movie are very like taut and tense 30 to 40. Like when MI 16 is attacked, it's like, holy, this movie is all about it. It is on right now. Then we start to go into the, like kind of the zany James Bond stuff. But the first 40 minutes of this movie are, pretty tight and very realistic i would I'm say i'm always amazed most by these i'm always amazed by these movies and the mission impossible movies how they're all like two and a half plus hours and yet i never feel like we had enough time to do everything that the movie probably wanted to do yeah it's like i think no time to die was almost three hours yeah two hours and, and 15 minutes yeah and it felt it but also i feel like there could have been more time to explain a couple more things or more time with his kid who's surprisingly his kid there's there's the one james bond kid that's actually a real thing yeah i have not seen no time to die yet so thanks for telling me that well <laughs> tough, tough eggs you've had you've had two years oh no you that's the complications <laughs> yeah, the complication of this question is about like how many kids a lot of these chicks die unfortunately a lot yes. of them get got so maybe that that i'm just not gonna finish that sentence i'm gonna cut that one out 
Yeah. I think the problem with that is stay away from James Bond. Stay away from yeah. him. Yeah. He's, He's in your city. He's a good egg. <laughs> He's in your city. You're hanging out with some shady characters. Put put those put the blinders up. It's not your night to go out. Don't go to the casino, Severine. Don't just ignore the handsome guy in the suit and go for the guy wearing like a like an Optimus Prime shirt and be like, I'll just chat yeah. with him. I don't need to do anything else, but at least he gets me away from this this hunk. Yeah, he seems safe. Yeah. Uh not safe is Javier Bardem's characters, which brings us to the next question of a of a fight question. Who was it a fight, Anton Chigurh or Silva? Oh, Anton Chigurh. Yeah, see, I thought about this I, when I wrote this question. I was like, "Ooh, this could be a fun one" because I hadn't rewatched the movie yet. And then I watched. I was like, "Silva's kind of a punk. He's kind of a lame Well, and furthermore, no country. Anton Chigurh is like something almost supernatural. He's a force of evil, more so than just being strong. He should have taken over from Michael Myers. Yeah, and you know, if you read Cormac McCarthy's work, shout out Cormac McCarthy. I just got his new book in the mail, actually, The Passenger, which I'm super excited about. Um, a lot of his thematic elements are apocalyptic, and I think that that's really the embodiment for Anton Chigurh. So I think Anton Chigurh just like makes <laughs> Silva's head explode. He just oh, stops the other side of his jaw. Of yeah, yeah, it's it's over in like two seconds. Silva like touches his shoulder and is like, "Ooh, would you like to try this?" And then yeah. Chigurh just snaps his neck, and it's over. Yeah. It's sad to me that Silva is great of a villain as he is. There's never like a cool fight with him. He's always relying on other people to do his dirty work, which is, I think, one of the kind of problems with this movie. But I mean, hey, it's okay. Well, there's, I don't think that that's really like a new concept. I mean, does Christoph Waltz do a lot of fighting in <laughs> Spectre? Or... Actually, I he think... got shredded. He's got a six pack. No, I know. And I've seen that movie, but like, it's not really like, it's, he's not really doing a lot of hands on combat in that movie. Right. And then yeah. I would say Rami Malik does, does, from what I've seen in the preview, seems to kind of get into the thick of it. He does nothing. He's 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 just no. kind of sits there. He does a silly little voice again. He is almost real quick. This is this episode. Let's do it. Episode of tangents. He is inaudible in movies at times. I can't understand half of his lines in the little things. I'm sorry. That's it, Mister Bond. What are you doing? Like, come on, Bob. <laughs> he just. I know we're Marble Mouth and we're not one to judge. But come on, get some get some listerine in there. Let's get this thing clean. <laughs> Get some ADR sessions, book a couple, you know, I feel like you got to. Would you rather have a booby-trapped house made by James Bond, M, and Kincaid, or Kevin McAllister? Uh, I'm going to go with Bond, M, and Kincaid just because I know that that's going to be lethal. It's going to be a one and done. Kevin's pranks are very kind of like tongue-in-cheek. Ah, well, they're actually not. Those adults get hurt. But like, yeah, you know, those it's adults, like, I think they've got like shattered hips by the end of those yeah. two movies. <laughs> They're in an old folks' home, just living off social like, security. They have no idea what year it is like us because they've had so many concussions that they're just like, Kevin got us good. Like he, the things he does for those men of like dropping the paint can on their heads and like the log and like the bricks. I feel like at one point tax, yeah. I I just I think Kevin's a little more devious than we think, and I, I think I'm gonna get pick Kevin because I think we gotta have some dissension here. Okay, fair enough. Are we having a Home Alone episode Kevin, when Christmas rolls around? I we could. We, have to. we sure could. I I think Kevin probably isn't, you know, clever enough as an eight-year-old boy to put shotgun shells on the floor and booby-trap right. them. But I think he could maybe figure out some stuff. I, I think Seville would probably kill him, but I think he'd put the hell fight. <laughs> you think Kevin's <laughs> figuring out that mirror trick that Kincaid lays down? 
which is a dope part. He just lets loose with that double barrel on those boys, those dogs trying to come in the house. We could talk about Kid Cade real quick. He's really fun in this movie because he's just like the old school British guy of like, I'll just shoot you. I don't really, I have no finesse about me. I just have a gun and I could pull a trigger. I have a great Kincaid note. Uh, there's a part in this movie at the end where like there's an assault on the Bond compound and it's helicopter rounds from a 50 cal drum. And James says, run, get down. And you can see that the actor who plays Kincaid just cannot. Albert Finney. Yeah, yeah you're just like, thank you. He kind of shuffles. And it's like, oh, it's, it completely breaks like the movie for a second because there's just no real threat. Like he just like shuffles. It's so funny. Judy Dench isn't moving much faster, but she at least is as no, oh, she's she's on her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is the threat is a scorpion trick at the at the opening of this movie? Could you do the scorpion trick, do you think? You could pull it off? <sighs> Depends on how much tequila I had previously. I mean, there there's such thing as liquid courage. But I would really hope that sanity would tell me no. So, do you think you'd try it, or do you think you'd have to be like coaxed and do it? I, I, I'd, I'd be really scared. I don't know. Like, cause, is there like somebody who's gonna hit me with an anti venom nearby, or am I just gonna turn blue and bloated and die at this bar? Like, yeah, you you're mean? just in this bar and you get bit, and they're just like, well, what are you gonna do? Which I guess there are worse ways to die. Looking at the ocean on a beautiful beach after just betting my thousands thousands woman but no i think i'm gonna hold off died because of a scorpion yeah <laughs> i mean look i can't drink any alcohol and i haven't so i feel like i'd take the sip of the alcohol and I'd be like whoa and then the scorpion would just bite down on my wrist and i'm dead yeah you would probably sniff alcohol and be drunk <laughs> yeah that's true uh you know who sounds drunk i'm working on i know a lot of people think the segues are bad so i'm working on them today yeah. you know who sounds drunk and elvis colonel tom parker <laughs> It's time for the Colonel Tom Parker Award for, for most overacting slash oddest acting choice. Okay. Uh, I got some. Oh, you do? Good, good. Because yeah. I have three prepared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Javier Bardem, for all his like highs in this movie, is doing a lot. He's really going for it. Yeah. A lot of screaming. He, ne- he unnecessarily shoots that guard in the courtroom. He just looks at him. He's like, ah! And he's standing right next to him, shoots him. He's wigging out, pulling out his hair. He goes into like basically a like, five-year-old temper tantrum with M at one point when he takes his jaw out, which is also strange because that scene looks really good. So I don't know if they like threw all the money at that for the CGI budget, but uh, so yeah, he's doing a lot in that part of the movie. So I think that might be like, I mean, we can get into this later, but I guess we can just do it now. I think this is probably why he didn't get nominated because there are a couple scenes that are just a little too much. He does have some ticks where it's like 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 he does the bond is a little like too much. But I think it's all within the character that it doesn't feel that weird to me. Like he does feel like eccentric, like the sign has rotted away all like the the like suaveness to him. Mm-hmm. Who's next on think, your list? I just think his energy is a little strange at times. I mean Kincaid is bad in this movie. <laughs> he's, he's Okay, fun I'm so glad it I'm so glad I'm, I, I, I'm not alone on this. Yeah, I love Albert Finney, but he, I couldn't remember his name. But uh, he's not a he's not very good in this movie. <laughs> I think it's a I don't think that it is for a lack of trying. I think it's purely a, a physicality thing. I think he's just an old man. He's just maybe a year or two away from probably just being like, hey, you should retire. Well, this is the last movie ever made, so you know mm-hmm. I think he's 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 gone shortly hereafter. 
So I don't think we can give it to him just because, like, you know, tough look to go out with the with the Colonel Tom Parker Award in your last movie. No, yeah. But he's he's just okay in this movie. Like he's not really doing a lot. He's just like I'm gruff. It's like that's yeah. great, Albert. Can we get a little sensitivity about how this boy that you loved is now back home for the first time in like thirty years? There's no like sentimentality there. Yeah, it's like him, like telling him like how to hold the shotgun, and like that's how I told you how to do. It. You put two shells in there. That was your father's gun. It's like yeah. that's great. Can you t- when we talk a little bit more about James Bond's father? We only hear like two words about this entire franchise. Mm-hmm. Give me, give me Jonathan Price in this role, or give me Brian Cox, but still doing his Robert McKee Logan Roy thing. Where he's yeah. like, "Fuck you, Silva!" Like, like, give me like a little bit of like, like a little more pizzazz. Yeah, yeah like give me a little more. Uh. Yeah, for a guy who's gruff, you know, he's pretty silent throughout that whole. It looks a little scared throughout that whole entire fight. Yeah, he looks like he he wet himself. I can't say <laughs> that, but I'm sorry, Albert Finney. God rest your soul. But you, you just should have said no to the offer when it came to your door. I agree. Uh, who else do you have on your list? Those were the two. Just those are my. my oh, okay. Two. I have a couple other ones uh, on my list here. I have the security guards that the Komodo dragon killed. He's just like, oh, oh! like <laughs> it's a lot of physical acting. Yeah, but I mean, what were you expecting from the security guard in the, in the casino? I mean, yeah, I'm not like <laughs> when the Komodo dragon gets him. I'm not like shocked. He's like, to be or not to be. Like I didn't really expect that. I yeah. just he's just a little like. Ah, like give me give me some better shouting give me like a little bit more there mr security guards that are just like oh i'm gonna get you yeah also i mean not to hammer this point home harder and harder but the komodo dragon looks terrible <laughs> yeah it's really tough it's like we could have gotten the wizard from the amazing spider-man and we might have looked a little bit better it's like did george lucas get a hold of this <laughs> yeah so i think the uh, komodo dragon's gonna come out of that pit and uh, wrap its tongue around his ankle and kill him <laughs> Next on my list is the M- MP criticizing Emmett Parliament. She's like, oh, you, you, stop, Amy, I, I can't do you with you. You're, you're crazy. We've got to question the nature of your business. She's just very, like, harping on. Like, I, I would have liked a little bit more from that actress. She's yeah. Fine. Yeah, it, it is almost very tropey British territory. And she's got, like, a bigger role than you think because we're cross-cutting between her yelling to, like, Silver running away and Bond on the train. Right. So, like, give us a little bit more uh, for that. Who's your pick? It's hard to give one of the best parts of the movie a kind of negative award, but I, I kind of want to give we it can. to Javier Bardem. Okay, I think we can criticize. We could do it this. He does the oddest acting choices, so I think he gets that because that's what the Colonel Tom Parker Award is. Like, Tom Hanks is an awful in Elvis, but his choice to do that voice of of nonsense is what gave him the award title. <laughs> His choices to do a lot in that movie gave him that title. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I guess this is my point. This role to me has some DNA with his role in The Counselor, which mm. is a very, very strange Ridley Scott. Also, another shout out to Cormac McCarthy, longtime listener, friend of the show, uh, is, a, is a property of his. He wrote the screenplay. Those two have a little DNA together. And I just think that some of the choices are a little too big. And I kind of like Javier Bardem in like the subtle things of like how, like how uh, Anton Chigurh is such a mystery. It's, it's more scary to me. I don't feel intimidated or threatened by Silva. I'm just interested by him. Mm -hmm. I think we will give it to him because I can't give it to Albert Finney 
Uh, we don't. We just don't. Don't have enough. I can't. Yeah. I can't add to it. In his last uh, role, I, no less. Yeah, I can't give it to security guard because, like, again, what do you expect? And I, I the MP's fine. That's what her character is. She's not given enough, so I think we got to give it to Bardem. Yeah, he's the best in. <laughs> he's the best thing in this, as far as like kind of just coming in and just spraying flames. He's out here just killing it, but. Sometimes he needs a little bit of a, an extinguisher, a little bit of a governor. So you're talking about the Oscar snub. I, I call it a snub, which is why I think we should talk about it now and what he uh, he missed out on there. So your 2013 Oscar nominees for actor supporting role, Christoph Waltz, Django, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Alan Arkin, Argo, yes. Rob De Niro, Silver Linings Playbook, yeah, sure. I think so. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, the master, should have won. I'm just going to flat out say it. That man should have won. That's, that's who should have won. That's who should have won. And then Tommy Lee Jones and Lincoln. Get him out of here. That's, that's such a like, a, <laughs> like, oh, we love Tommy Lee. Yeah. Has anyone seen Lincoln since it came out? Like, I saw that movie one no. time. <laughs> I feel like people even forget that Steven Spielberg made that movie. But uh, I think oh, that... It, yeah. I really don't think it's close. I think it's... It's Philip Seymour Hoffman in The Master by a Mile. That's, that jail scene with him and Joaquin Phoenix is one of the best scenes of the past 50 years. I don't care what anyone says. You you can put that up there. That's, that's in anything that's in Lawrence of Arabia, Citizen Kane, Eight and a Half, take your pick of all the, of all the great movies. That scene is flawless. And I, I don't want to go on a Philip Seymour Hoffman tear because I actually will probably get really sad. But yeah, mm-hmm. he's one of my favorite actors of all time. Get Tommy Lee out of here, put Javier in, and I think, and give the award to Philip. And I think we're looking way better in the annals of history. I think Christoph Waltz was a thing for a minute. Those two, I mean, yes, it was like it was like the race to see who would who would have the home run record with Mark McGuire and Barry Bonds. It was like, is he gonna do it two times in a row for the same director? It was kind of like a big deal to like have him nominated back to back in two Quentin Tarantino movies. But uh, I yeah. think that that was, that was something people got sucked into a little bit. I think he's great in both those movies, but it it does feel like you can't knock Bardem for getting it twice. You can't be like, oh, well, Bardem can't get it because he got it for True or uh, No Country, and then give it to Waltz. So that whole argument is out the window. And he's definitely better than Tommy Lee Jones and Lincoln. There's no way he's not. There was another nominee in there, and I've seen the movie. Can you read them to me? I just want um, It was Hoffman, uh, De Niro, Arkin. De Niro. That was my other one. De Niro and Arkin. They're both in Argo and Silver Lining, Lining's Playbook, respectively, for like maybe 10 minutes. Like yes. Robert De Niro probably a little bit more in Silver Lining's Playbook, and he's doing some really good stuff and really emotional, like – you know, that scene where Bradley Cooper loses it and, you know, he's crying. It's really tough to watch. He's doing a lot of great stuff. And that might be one of his last really, really big, good performances outside of The Irishman. But he's in it for like 10 minutes. <laughs> I know it's supporting actor, but still, it's really pushing it. Yeah. Yeah. I think if this was done today, I think we'd have much different uh, results here on on this list, but whatever. Yeah, and I honestly think that you could almost put Philip Seymour Hoffman in Best Actor. He's as much of a, a Let's part Let's do this, of too. Let's do this. So our, our actors in this are, oh, okay. I think, oh, Daniel Day-Lewis, obviously. Bradley Cooper, yes. Hugh Jackman, I say yes. 
Joaquin for the master as well, and Denzel in flight. So I don't know who you knock out for Philip Seymour Hoffman. Flight's really good. You're going to do it to Denzel? It's really good. It's like the Jack Nicholson effect. It's like, it was yeah. a Meryl Streep effect. It's like, I've seen this like 10 times. Like, can we maybe get some, yeah. some, some fresh nominees? I, I mean, just because yeah. I feel like, you know, in the master, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix characters. I know that Joaquin's character's name's Freddie. I forget. Lancaster, Lancaster Dodd. Dodd. Lancaster Dodd. Dodd. Yeah. yeah. Is uh, Philip Seymour. They are, they're two halves that create one person in that movie. The way they're framed, the way that they operate. I can't wait till we have the master episode. Yeah, this is not about the master. This is about Skyfall, sorry, by the way. Sorry, I, don't know if sorry. <laughs> I participated. It's fine. Uh, moving on to our last stretch of stuff before we get into, uh, you know, Decade Decider real quick. Was Silver right? You know, I, I think this is one of the movies where I'm like, uh, you know, he's not that. I, I think he goes about things the wrong way, but his ideas aren't aren't awful. I mean, they're pretty awful. All yeah, of the I'm things he talks about, are... I just thought about. I thought about it again. All of the things he like mentions when he's making that weird beep beep noise and like James Bond's face are all terrible, like acts of terrorism. <laughs> I think you can almost look past it a little bit, if not for the Severine stuff. That's I have a really real like... hard time. <laughs> Got a real hard time yeah. looking past terrorism, pal. <laughs> I can't look past it. Sorry. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he blows up a government building. <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna delete this. I, I mean, we'll keep it to the show. But I, um, I thought he was more sympathetic than I thought. I mean, the first forty minutes was when I did a lot of the pre-show notes, uh, and I was like, oh, he, he wasn't like that bad, was he? And then I didn't no, really Javier Bardem is not. <laughs> Silva is not a four chan character. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna. All right, he's awful. Uh, question two: What to you makes Silva such an interesting and captivating villain? I have a whole little TED talk on this, my weekly TED talk, but I want to hear yours. Uh, I don't really have a long TED talk. I don't think that this is a a villain that would have been as interesting if it wasn't in the hands of Javier Bardem. Uh, mm. It's really great. This is a great script, and we haven't really gone into that as much. But just a lot of great lines about death and murder that you just don't expect. You know, where were you for the past three months enjoying death? the whole murder employment employment mechanism that we we're talking about in that conversation. Um, What's your hobby resurrection? What do you mean? Where, where he says like, what's your hobby to, to bond and bond goes resurrection. Oh yes, exactly. Yeah. That line too. Yeah. Yes. When they're on the Island. Yes. That's a great line too. And he's got him in the chair. So I think, you know, in the hands of like a lesser actor, this probably wouldn't as work worked as well. So what makes this part interesting to me is kind of like a Jimmy Conway thing where I'm watching the choices I'm watching like the crazy batshit decisions Javier Bardem is making more so than I'm intrigued by the, the villain dialogue or the, mm -hmm. the rat speech is great, but I'm, I'm interested in the choices he's making while giving it. Yes, I, I would agree. Something I find, and this is the start of the Ted talk. Interesting with Silva. How his mission contrasts to bond so much. And I suppose this is what makes him more refreshing than captivating, I guess, but he's not after world domination. I think when you look at what comes next for this franchise and what it suffers from with their villains is both Blofeld and, and Christoph Waltz and Rami Malek's and No Time to Die are both after this very broad, like, I want to take over the world. Right. It's like, well, why? Like, I, I, that's a hard thing for me to wrap my head around as to why you want to do that or what drove you to this point. But Silva's motive is very simple of like, I want to kill him. Mm. And there's not really a lot of other stuff to it. He talks about like the, 
destabilize the economy, overthrow this election or whatever. But for the most part, why he's in this movie is to kill M. And the reason he gives for that is sympathetic in nature, or at least understandable and coherence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to the previous question's point, I don't think he's wrong for pointing out the malice behind these nations, but the way he goes about it is completely off. And, you know, terrorism <laughs> isn't great. <laughs> but what makes him captivating to me is how he and Bond are in the reverse thematically, not just in like their motives. Yes, one is trying to kill the other, the other is trying to protect. But thematically, there's something far more interesting. Throughout the entire film, Silva's trying to kill him to get revenge, but there's also an element that if he kills her, he slays his trauma. You know, he can erase the past uh, once she's dead and move on from all this pain. His name is on the thing there. He doesn't, he wants her to acknowledge who he is or who he used to be, and she won't do it. And so he thinks if he does that, he could finally start anew as Silva. But (laughs) on the flip side, Bond is always trying to protect the source of his trauma. He's trying to protect M, who seized him as an orphan, and was like, oh, great, I'll make him a soldier, and turn him into a killing machine. He's trying to protect England, but he's from the Scottish hills, or the highlands, despite the fact that England literally killed him and he died for it. He's trying to protect it and its whole idea of, like, sovereignty. You know, he's not just coming back for Silva, either. This isn't like, I'll do this one job for you, M. He's coming back, and the engine is showing that Bond is recommitted to MI6. So he's going to die for this, you know, later on, eventually, no time to die. And, you know, to that point, Skyfall script brings Bond back to the source of his sharpest pain, his parents' death. It's always about trauma, I think, with these two characters. And whereas Bond draws on this power of pain, Silva's always trying to destroy it. And I found that very interesting. Um, Off topic, but like if you contrast this even to where their hideouts are, quote unquote, Bonds is, you know, somewhere with Kincaid and like family and all this sort of stuff. And even though it's a, it's a source of pain, it's also a source of power and good memories. Whereas Silva's on an island where he's driven everyone away. Mm-hmm. And the only people left are those either too scared of him or like too blinded by their own ambition to like not figure out this is probably the wrong thing. So mm-hmm. to that point, the film's finale is far more than a cool action set piece. It's a purposeful reflection on what our hero and villain are trying to protect. More than that, I think it's about these two people trying to bypass their pain. Silva believes he has to kill it, whereas Bond thinks he can live with it. And it's not until all of those things was passed are gone, Skyfall and M, that Bond can actually accept what happens. And while I don't really love the next two entries in the franchise, they do at least continue the thread where Bond gradually learns to accept love with Swan and have the kid. And mm-hmm. he ultimately does die. Spoiler alert for you, Nick. Sorry, buddy. No, uh, he yeah. dies... <laughs> He dies as they get away, and he's protecting something he loves, not killing something he wishes loved him. And I mm. just think this whole mommy issue thing with Silva is just really, really interesting and such a nice divergent. I, I think you're 100% right. How many Bond villains cry? <laughs> How many Bond villains are, like, emasculated in a cage? Not many, if any. How many of them are just like, notice me, please? Yeah, exactly. I think that I think that what you said, a lot of the things are accurate. One of the other things that I I like too um, <clears throat> with Javier Bardem is he's not really given any like cool like outfit design. He's very bland in his like depiction. Whereas like Bond is like kind of sexy and, and kind of suave. He's so I mean his hair is is eccentric and weird, but like he's kind of just a filler like everything is facilitated through javier bardem it's not the 
it's not really gimmicky. And like the thing where he takes his cheekbone out is really only done once. It's not it's not overutilized. He dies like with a knife in his back and he's like, oh, like like that. Like it's not like a climactic like, oh, they both got guns. One shoots, the other misses. And it's like, oh, he's just dead. He's really in like a lot of tans. And yeah. he steals things that like he needs instead of like wearing something interesting. I, he's very like, you know, a villain is traditionally in like black or, or you know, black with red and stuff like that. He's very yeah. like just bland and like with his like textiles. I don't know. It's just a strange. Yeah. It was just a really cool choice for like the design of the character, I thought. He's got a lot less screen time than you think because he doesn't appear until like 50 minutes in. Um, I wrote that as a note. Yeah. Yeah. Empty, empty your notebook and everything else you got there because you sent me a little Snapchat, you know, last night bragging about like, oh, this is what a true podcaster does. So, uh, no, I wasn't bragging. I was joking. Um, <laughs> I can give you my, con- I'll give you my concluding thoughts because I think that we probably talked give it, about. Give it to me. Yeah. Um, this is what I had. While oddly paced early on and confusing character motivations, an absolutely bad <laughs> Javier and strong supporting cast along with a, sorry, I can barely read my own handwriting, biting script combined for a fun and refreshing take. On an iconic character, a stellar second half propels this to all-time Bond movie lists. I would agree with that. Um, one last thing we can just kind of talk about real quick is just like we mentioned Deacons earlier, but the work he does throughout this entire movie and just a few scenes I want to highlight. Obviously, you have the fight in Shanghai on the top of the skyscraper where uh, our boy Patrice, shout out R.I.P., falls and dies. Tragic stuff, but the way those lights are coming in in the mirror and everything like that. I have to believe Dennis Villeneuve or however you pronounce it saw that scene. It was like, get me, get me him for Blade Runner. I want to do that. Yes. And to piggyback off of what you were saying and how much we love Deacons with light. I felt like the scene at night when um, they're at the compound that gets blown up. I thought that was a practice run for 1917 to me. I was like, wow, a lot Mm. of the shadows and the way that the orange bounces off of uh, Kincaid's face and uh, M's face to me, I was like, oh, this seems like a practice run for 1917. I had that here in the notes, but not in a way that it's like ripping off. It's just like, oh, that is just how beautiful Roger Deakins can make the night sky look when it's lit up with fire. Yeah. Another scene, the shaving scene with Money Penny. It's very simple, but the way it's shot is so intimate and Mm -hmm. warm. And just breathtaking, just the way it looks, the way her dress is popping with that red. Yeah. Wonderful dialogue, too. If we're just emptying out the notebook here, the back half of this movie rips. Everything from when Sylvia is captured to the conclusion of this movie rips. It's two movies, I always feel, where there's like the pre-Silva and after-Silva, and the after-Silva part is always more interesting to me. <laughs> and I feel his scariness because we spend such such a long stretch without him. Like when they're at the bar and he's talking to Seb, how do you Severine. say Severine. Thank you, Severine. Severine. And she basically tells him like, you don't, you don't want to play this game. Like you don't want to see this side of ugly. Like it, you yeah. feel that a little bit. And her terror is even like a great inversion and subversion. Like you talked about way earlier of the Bond girl where yes, she does unfortunately fall into the pitfall of like, she's not really a character for the most part. She's just like here to have Bond put his, his wee wee in her mm-hmm. um but she's not she's a victim more than anything and i mm-hmm. think in a different story you could do something a little more interesting with how bond is so readily available to take what she's lost and just seize on it and be like ah oh, cool we'll have sex now but you know i don't know where i'm going with that but another I found her care 
I found uh, it's a good subversion. I just find her character a little vapid just because she dies so quickly. It just yes, and I think it that's does another add an pitfall of this genre. Yeah. yeah. Uh, other things too, right here, because I know I had talked about spy tropes. I found another one that I love: train pursuits. Mm. And I'm not talking ah. in the sense of the beginning of the movie. I'm talking about in the sense when Silva's in the police officer disguise. I love when somebody's on one subway car and they're trying to look and see where the other person is, or they have to jump on the train. There's a great one in The Departed. Uh, just like I love collateral. that kind of stuff. Yeah, Collateral has a great one too at the end. Um, but yeah, that's always just another great trope that I think is really well done in this. The two more for Big Raj. The the shootout in Parliament with the with everything is just so well done. I think the fire extinguishers when they're shot give a really nice haze to that whole scene. Mm-hmm. And then when Bond arrives to the casino to meet Severine. Comment on that boat with like the the Chinese, uh, I don't know what you call them, but God, it looks so terrific. It's great. Yeah, when he's going under the bridge and the score, Newman score, just 10 out of 10 right there. Woo, that's some good stuff. On to Decky Decider. Well, well, Nick maybe tries to find one less nug for us. Uh, for those who don't know, we look at every single uh, decade, three or more people have made in this film. We're going to do three this week. I'd love to do Judy Dench, but unfortunately, neither of us has seen enough of the filmography to really have a real take on that. Um, so we'll stick this week with Daniel Craig, Javier Bardem, and Sam Mendes. Kind of want to run through this a little quicker than we usually do, just because you know the hits are high and the, the lows are kind of low with with this. We'll start with Craig. Um, uh, what's your real thoughts on Daniel Craig? I, I want to hear some some little take on that. Yeah, um, I think like all three of these people have a one connective tissue, and that is they got pretty famous older. It's not like they were really young, came out of the gate with a lot of vim and vigor. I mean, Sam Mendes was this, was working on the screen for a long time before he became a filmmaker. So of course that's a whole like kind of different hierarchy. But as far as like being on screen, you know, Javier Bardem really <laughs> didn't become a household name until No Country for Old Men, which is 2007. But he had done a lot of great work before that, like Beautiful and um, some other projects. Daniel Craig, somebody who kind of like is just known in the British realm, and then kind of blows up when he becomes James Bond, you know, but has been in other good movies before and in between uh, doing James Bond. So I like Daniel Craig. I think he's very versatile. I hope now that he's not making these movies and having to kind of crank these out every two or three years, he starts to make some different choices because uh, I think Knives Out is the beginning of that. And I hope that there's some more of that stuff. You're stealing my thunder here, you little, you little twerk. Uh... I'm sorry. To get to the beginning of, of Daniel Craig real quick, I want to mention a movie called A King and King, King Arthur's Court. This is about a hapless teenager, Calvin Fuller, not played by, played by Daniel Craig. He's he's one of the guys we'll get to, but uh, he finds himself careening through a hole torn in the fabric of time. Calvin awakes in the Middle Ages where legendary sorcerer Merlin recruits him to rid Camelot of evil. Calvin must use the 20th century street smarts to outwit the despicable lord Belasco an insidious nobleman determined to rest control of the throne from King Arthur. Daniel Craig's in this movie. You know who else in this movie? Before Ooh. she gets really famous? Kate Winslet. Oh, wow, that's pretty neat. Yeah. Sam Mendes' wife for a period of time. We might have to do a kid King Arthur this quarter. It's a movie just like the uh, the shark movie that Mike Nichols did. Yeah. <laughs> no, Dolphins. Dolphins, that's right. I'm sorry. Yeah. My bad. Yeah. I thought it was something cool. My, my mistake. Day of the Dolphin. So Daniel Craig's career, I would say, doesn't really get going until the early 2000s wrote a prediction in 2002 the mother in, in 2003 layer cake 2004 munich and then by 06 he's officially james bond with casino royale 
like you say, he doesn't get famous till he's what, like thirty-five, maybe a little older than that. At least I, 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 and that's and that's a weird term, famous. But like, yeah, at least like a household name and kind of prevalent. At, yeah. You know, on a, like, oh, I know that guy. Yeah. I think the two thousands are very interesting. It, it does show like what an odd choice it was with Layer Cake being such an odd movie that is at the other end of the spectrum to then make him Bond is a very inspired casting choice. One that really, you know, obviously worked. It was risky at the time. Yeah. Uh, 2011, Cowboys and Aliens, less said the better. Um, <laughs> Adventures of Tintin, he teams with Spielberg. Girl with a Dragon Tattoo in 2011 as well. Really big year for him. Then go to Skyfall 2012. Spectre, Logan Lucky 2017. Knives Out 2019, No Time to Die 2021, Glass Onion 2022. Um, real quick, I wanted to mention the people that these people have worked with because I think it's an interesting way to explore who they, you know, kind of gotten around with. This is Daniel Craig, Sam Mendes, Matthew Vaughn, Steven Spielberg, John Favreau, David Fincher, Steven Soderbergh, Ryan Johnson, Carrie Fukunaga. Fukunaga. Yeah, it's just heavy hitters across the board it it's the same thing like we were talking about with deacons just being selective and choosing good work good people what uh what decade you taking here i think he's got to be in the 2010s there's just, just too much stuff i like in there not to take i mean i really enjoy logan lucky you get some of the start the start of the the weird daniel craig and kind of eccentric because i think there's a world where daniel craig could be michael shannon like in realistically oh, yeah. of just being a great he could be like Javier Bardem like you know what I mean like that's the world I can picture Daniel Craig operating in so you get some of that but you also have the start of these or not the start but like you know you have the best of these with Skyfall exactly for that reason I'm taking the 2020s I we have a lot to go but I think now that he's free I don't want to say the constraints now that he's free to do whatever he wants and do like to his body or or whatever I think we're going to see a really interesting decade for Daniel Craig. I think Logan Lucky is really the start of that. And then Knives Out, obviously, and Glass Onion and, and the Knives Out you know, franchise is going to be a different thing for him, another one. But they're very different movies than James Bond. <laughs> right. And I just think we're going to get some really fascinating stuff that uh, maybe more stuff like Layer Cake. And uh, I'm all in. I'm all in on Craig. He's an underrated I like, talent. I like what you're saying, but this is almost the, the argument for Aaron Judge that I accept. He's a little older. You know, you're going to give this guy max contracts and now he's not James Bond anymore. You know, like is I just don't I don't want him to be relegated to just character actors. Right. Like I want to still him to be able to be that have the cachet to be a Benoit Blanc to like, he is 54. you know, so yeah. it's 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 kind of interesting. Like what roles are there for him now? I don't know. Well, we'll find out. Javier Bardem, kind of like you said, I think his first big American role for the most part is collateral. The one where I think mainstream audiences, especially, are like, oh, who's this fella? He's also got uh, wild hair in that movie too. I forgot. Yeah, he it's does. Just, it's a great. It's all like spiked up. In the, yeah, it's spiked up. Oh, no, it's spiked up. Is it? I think it is. Oh no, he does have a shaved head in, in that. Yeah, you're right. He yeah. does. Yeah. Black Pedro or, or whatever the. <laughs> yeah, it's all clean shaven. Yeah, he's kind of looking weird in that too. Within three years, he's got no country. Vicky Cristalina Barcelona. He's got three noms by 2010 for Bittyful. Skyfall 2012. Then it kind of, I don't want to say goes downhill, but the latter half of the 2010s is a very interesting year or a section for Bardem. The Counselor, The Gunman, Loving Pablo, Mother, and Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean sequel. Yeah. Uh, Hollywood, man. That's Hollywood for you. That's just, 
well, I mean, who is bilingual and people will recognize and is kind of ethnically ambiguous at the same time? No, oh, between Bardem. him, it's between Javier Bardem and Benicio del Toro, like, <laughs> which is kind of sad. And now Pedro but, Pascal. Yeah, it's just I feel like those kind of guys kind of get, you know, they they're in the Bill Belichick scheme. They just get plugged in and played. They're just X's and O's. I think we're starting to see a little bit back to, to the norm for for Bardem in the 2020s, being the Ricardo as he yes. got nominated. Dune, he's going to have a bigger role. Uh, the Good Boss is another movie that's coming out later this year or already came out that's a little different. So I think we're going to get back to the old school Bardem, but I think it's an easy choice for the 2000s. I mean, no country sense. collateral, just... Ooh. Yeah, I, I think it's the 2000s. A guy who was always interesting, always exciting, sometimes takes some some odd projects. I think that would be the mm-hmm. summation for that. I'm going to go the 2000s. To that point... To that point, Bardem has worked with John Malkovich as a director, Michael Mann, the Coen brothers, Woody Allen, uh, Inuratu, Sam Mendes, Terrence Malick, Ridley Scott, Darren Aronofsky, Denis Villeneuve, and Aaron Sorkin. So Javier, you know, like a lot of the guys we're talking about here, he gets around and he does it well. He knows how to pick them. Mm. Mm. Call him... uh, Call him Brian Gutekunst because he's got he just knows who to pick in that draft. You you leave Goody out of this. Hey, you went after the Mets. This is what you get. You you Tacitus. Uh, I don't know. Sam Mendes. Sam. <laughs> Sam Mendes. Um, one of the more I don't want to say influential, but like intriguing directors, I think, in the game, kind of sorta. Yeah, comes out of the gate with American Beauty. It's one of the six people to win an Oscar for Best Director in their debut. Yeah, Sam Mendes, like one of the guys who comes out of the gate, American Beauty, one of the six people to win an Oscar for their debut, which is pretty impressive. Then does Road to Perdition, which gets like another six noms. So like two movies ran out of the gate that like, I don't know, I go back and watch all the time as much as like we talked earlier, American Beauty is problematic, especially given who stars in that movie. But yeah, he's just somebody to me who I think is passionate about making the choices you know 1917 was a very personal project to him it's based off a story that was passed down to him by his grandfather so somebody like we talked about earlier i don't think operates through or it's not like his ambition is not money it's not like financial success it's it's not after the studio success yeah 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 i think he's one of the best directors that no one really talks about in a lot of ways i'll be curious to see what empire of light does for him because I've heard mixed uh, things about that. I've heard some some pretty tough stuff. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> so an, that's, a, that's a that's a prime example of a director who is a great director. Maybe you should stay out of the kitchen for screenwriting. If you look at all of this best stuff, it's written by other people. That is a great point. I think the two thousands are are odd, where he goes repetition, which is such a hard like one way, and then Jarhead, which is good, but not really what you expect. I feel. I think Jarhead has gotten a reappraisal. I think that that is a really I have to go back I think, to it. I think that movie, if you look at it, was really ahead of its time, and it's like dissection of that war. And I don't really want to get into that because that's a whole nother podcast. Yes. But yeah, yeah. Uh, Revolutionary Road also uh, a great film. I that said, I'm going to pick the 2010s. 1917 was my favorite movie of that year. Skyfall is up there for 2012. So I'm gonna look. You can you can shade on 1917, and that's fine. Everyone does, but I think what it did and what it tried to do 
it's such a simple story to make that as engaging as it is. And I feel like it didn't really overstay its welcome or the way a lot of other movies could with that script. I just adore it. I, I think it's fantastically shot and filmed. And Deacons does a lot of prop for that, not just Mendy's. And the one straight one take gimmick isn't really that effective because if you're smart enough, you can tell where the cut is. So it's not like, how do they do that? It's like, well, right. it's just there. You just you just freeze on one frame long enough and then you start the scene in the exact same frame. Yeah. But I just think it's a dynamite movie and I, I love World War One. I'm super stoked for the Aquad and the Western Front movie that came out this weekend. Gonna watch that soon. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'll give it to the end of the twenty tens. Well, fair enough. I'm gonna take the two thousands. I think Road to Perdition might be Thomas Newman's best score, but that's my personal opinion. Ooh, I mean, that's that for the road perdition cast. Oh man, that scene in the rain. Just, I love that score. That's just great. But anyways, for Sam Mendes, who he's worked with, Kevin Spacey, Yuck, uh, Annette Benning, Tom Hanks, Paul Newman, Daniel Craig, Jennifer Jason Lee, Jake Gyllenhaal, Jamie Foxx, Leonardo DiCaprio, Kate Winslet, Javier Bardem, Christoph Waltz, Olivia Coleman, and now Colin Firth. Never heard of any of them. <laughs> No, obviously, just yeah, another murderous row. Uh, but you know what? I think that just about does her there, partner. You want to hear more for from us? What do you got to do, Nick? You know what? For the first time, uh, I don't have my pick ready. It's it's one of those moments. Yeah, well, you know, it's. I feel like when the Josh Pretty episodes come up, it, it almost kind of works in that sense where then it's your pick and then the next person's pick, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I haven't had a pick in a little bit. I haven't had time to. I haven't had time to sit down and think about it. So to be continued. We go to Jake maybe for Tin Cup. He mentioned it. He he's 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 got a zest for that film, which looks like awful trash. But you know, hey, anything that has Kevin Costner in that kind of outfit, you can miss me with it. Josh, as always, it's been a great time. A uh, little marble mouth this time around. A little flustered, but you know what? We came back with a vim and vigor, just like this movie does in the second half. I enjoyed you know talking what? about this. That's the Chicago way. <laughs> Road dogs out. <laughs>